without the glaive, you'll never be able to reach Lissa. I need weapons, not symbols. Once the glaive was a very powerful weapon, it can be so again. But only in the hands of the right man. For only the right man can retrieve the glaive. Am I that man? I wish I knew. A prince goes on an epic quest to save his planet and rescue his beloved bride. Listen as we discuss a weapon that could have been named by Jerry Lewis, flying horses that are afraid of heights, and a Spirit of Halloween Admiral Akbar costume. Then we find out if 1983's Crawl stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, but you guys know that. You've been listening to us for years. You know my name, and you also know the name of my co-host, and his name is James Brief. You guys can call me James. You guys can call me James Brief. You guys can call me Jamie, if that's another name I go by. I feel like Jamie should be reserved for, like, family and people who know you really, really well. Um, you know me really, really well. Yeah, I'm not going to call you Jamie, though. I just think that's weird. But I think we should start this episode, even though we just wrapped up our trilogy about the Star Wars prequels, with uh, some pretty big Star Wars news. There was a article in Vanity Fair where they were talking about the different Star Wars projects in development. Well, I mean, first off, it wasn't just a story in Vanity Fair. It was the cover of Vanity Fair. I went out and bought the magazine because I'm just that kind of a nerd. But like, there's a lot of cool Star Wars TV projects in the works. I mentioned how pumped I am for Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney+, and there's a lot of other shows that they're developing. There's Andor, which we knew about, which they've been talking about for a while, which sounds pretty cool. I mean, I didn't think that that guy from Rogue One necessarily needed his own spinoff TV show, but... Yeah, sure. Why not? He was an interesting character. I'll watch that. Ahsoka having her own show. Obviously, that's a big deal. I love Ahsoka. She's a really, really cool character. There's also this new series that they announced from John Watts, which is like a high school coming of age story set in the Star Wars universe. Like, that sounds awesome. Uh, I mean, if it could just be like The Mandalorian, which is basically... It's a good story. It has a reference to the Star Wars universe. Not everything has to be the grand, you know, fight against the Empire and everything. It could just be an interesting bounty hunter or just some guy that makes spaceships. You know, it could be anything. It could be the guy that makes uh, the, the power converters at the Tashi station. As long as it's a good story, that, that's all it needs. Well, I mean, I think just from like the pitch line, it almost sounds like 
Stranger Things meets Star Wars, which just sounds like a great idea. And it's from John Watts, who just did these three amazing Spider-Man movies. I think there's potential there. You know, what I like the most is that they're actually scaling back the movies. I think originally when Disney bought a Lucasfilm, they said they were going to basically do a movie every year, and every other year will be part of the main storyline. They announced that Solo one, then they also announced in the beginning, Obi-Wan the movie, and Yoda the movie, and it was going to be so overload, and I like that, you know, that I can kind of watch it on my own pace, and I could uh, watch it a little bit later, it's fine. I know you watch it the second it comes out. Well, obviously. Yes, obviously. I just hope there's not something every single week of Star Wars because it just can't sustain. There's going to be too much crap out there eventually. Well, I mean, I think Disney Plus is doing a pretty good job of releasing Marvel shows, Star Wars shows, and just keeping the fans happy with new content. But it doesn't feel overwhelming to me personally. No, not yet. And I hope it doesn't. Right, 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 right. And there's still uh, Taika Waititi's movie. I'll watch any movie from Taika Waititi. I love that guy. So, you know, yeah, let's see it. And there's also uh, Rogue Squadron from uh, Patty Jenkins coming out. Rise of Skywalker was what, 2019? I think it was right before pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so uh, it, it'll be like at least four years before a movie. And that, that, that's appropriate. The prequels were three years apart. And even those kind of seemed like, oh, wow, it's already another prequel. You know, no business model is going to say they're going to stretch it out like uh, episode six to episode one. But there should be some more anticipation. Like every once in a while, they do take a break from Star Trek and these other, uh, even James Bond. It's good to take a break and, you know, whet the audience's appetite. Yes. Uh But let's talk about a movie that has nothing to do with Star Wars, Krull. Nothing at all. Absolutely not. Nothing. I'm sure it's director and the writer of this film. I've never heard of Star Wars. I'm sure they've never seen it. Uh, Star what? What are you talking about? Exactly. So this was a movie that you picked. Thanks for that. Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners what it's about? Well, this is a sci-fi film, and it's a movie about the inhabitants of the planet Krull. Hence the movie title, Kroll. An evil creature called the Beast has invaded the planet. So Princess Lissa agrees to marry Prince Colwyn. This will unite the kingdoms and then they can fight back against the Beast and his Slayers. But during the wedding, Slayers kidnap Lissa and Colwyn must go on a quest to rescue her. He's guided by an elderly mentor, Yanir, who helps him locate a mystical weapon known as the Glaive. Colwyn then meets a shapeshifter, a group of bandits, and a Cyclops, and they all aid in his journey. Eventually, Colwyn defeats the Beast, rescues his bride, and saves the planet Krull. Yeah, he does. So this movie could not have been a hit when it came out. I guess, mini spoiler alert, it very clearly sets up a sequel at the end, and there was no sequel, I'm guessing, because it was a bomb. Oh, it was a major bomb. They put a lot of money in this film. They did? This is 1983. They put $50 million into this film. 
on what catering? <laughs> no, I mean, there's different numbers on the internet. Up to 50 million, I've seen 30 million, but they spent a lot of money on this film and they did not make their money back. The film was only in theaters for three weekends. It opened at number four. Guess what was number three that weekend? Then appropriately beat Kroll uh, on uh, July 29, 1983, in like its 19th week or something. Return of the Jedi? Correct. So it opened at uh, number four, then it was number six, then nine, and then it was gone. $16 million total box office take, and that was it. I can't believe that they spend $30 million on this movie. Like, that is mind-blowing. Whoever charged them for special effects ripped them the fuck off. They just bought a yacht or something. I'm I'm not so sure about that. Remember, this is 1983. There's a lot of stop motion photography, and actually, some of it I think is very cool. That there's some special effects when they use miniatures, but oh, they use some horrible front projection green screens, which are. It's almost like a Saturday Night Live. Like, it's funny because it's so bad on SNL. Like, some of the special effects are horrible, but they certainly didn't spend it on stars because uh, the acting in this film is actually very good. Uh, all of the like extras in this film, I found a piece of trivia. You might have noticed they're uh, mostly British in this film, but they're all uh, people from the Royal Shakespeare Company. I definitely picked up on um, Robbie Coltrane, uh, him being in this film. I actually did, did not pick up on Liam Neeson being in this film uh, in a minor role. What? You didn't recognize him? I just didn't notice it. You're right. To be shocked. Uh, yeah, I'm shocked. I mean, I recognize his name in the credits. I mean, he looks young, but it's still Liam Neeson. And it's like, man, what are you doing in this hot garbage movie? I mean, when it's pointed out to me, I've watched the scenes and I'm like, oh, obviously it is. I was just kind of, uh, I was really focused actually on Robbie Cotred. He has this like Freddie Mercury like mustache and they're all bandits. And Liam Neeson appropriately looks like, you know, he's got a scruff on his face and kind of a beard. And I just love that he kind of looks like he's got this uh, 70s mustache. But, you know, I we really got to talk about this film, like where it comes from. And I haven't seen this film in probably 35 plus years, maybe more. And I have memories of loving this film and thinking it was kind of epic but if you think about it there's a lot to kind of love when you're a five-year-old that you want nothing but star wars there's no vhs star wars yet and star wars is not on uh, hbo or anything but um this film comes from a whole group of films that satisfied an itch, and that was a huge Star Wars ripoff genre of sword fighting and space films. In the late 70s, early 80s, they had films that we've reviewed some of them before, uh, The Last Starfighter, and even some of the Star Trek films were Star Wars-like. Uh, we reviewed Moonraker, which was a James Bond film that obviously was you know made to be like James Bond meets Star Wars. Uh, we reviewed that movie Highlander, I mean, that was a big kind of epic sword fighting story that just all comes from Star Wars. And this film, Kroll, you know the pitch was something like King Arthur meets Star Wars. Something meets Star Wars. The way that every 90s action film was something meets Die Hard. Everything in the 80s was something crossed with Star Wars. And that was this film. 
I got this movie on DVD, uh, which I didn't have to do because it was on HBO Max. But on the back of the DVD, it says Excalibur meets Star Wars. Excalibur is a movie we should do on the podcast. I've watched it once and I would be interested to revisit that. But yeah, it's a ripoff of medieval fantasy mixed with Star Wars elements. And it's not at all original. It just borrowed many different elements from mostly Star Wars, mostly, you know, uh, Excalibur, things like that. There's also like some Lord of the Rings ripoffs in there. I mean, it's just not at all original. It starts in space. This is not a space film. It completely, 100% takes place on the planet Kroll. And the credits are in the in space, and it basically looks like Star Wars opening number. Well, the opening shot is of this spaceship, and it's called the Black Fortress, which, really original name, by the way, guys. Uh, but it's a Black Fortress flying in space very slowly in front of the camera. It looks just like the Star Destroyer shot from Star Wars. Exactly. You know, it's very, very clearly a Star Wars ripoff. The name of the princess is Lissa. Oh, my which God. Which sure sounds a lot like Princess Leia. I mean, it's princess. Forget that it's Lissa. It's princess. I, I mean... Uh, well, yeah. Then the bad guys show up and they have these laser guns that they can use to kill all of the good guys from really far away. And they do that a lot, which makes sense for them. But then sometimes they let the good guys run right up to them. And then their guns are also swords. And the swords have laser effects. And these soldiers look like stormtroopers, by the way. They look like, you know, stormtrooper ripoffs. Well, I mean, they're more like monstrous, but the fact that they have these guns that are also swords and they don't use them as guns a lot when they really, really should is one thing. But then there are these effects that are very lightsaber-esque, except they're garbage. Like they look really, really terrible. It just looks like someone like put some coloring on the film when the swords hit each other. Here's a little bit of red with a ting. Like, it's just terrible. There is something else that Star Wars asks. This is one part of this film that I think is fantastic, and that is the score by James Horner, probably most famous for his later work, uh, uh, Aliens and uh, Titanic. I mean, the guy is uh, very, very famous. You know, if he hadn't uh, passed away, he'd probably be you know, doing everything Hans Zimmer does. I think his score, you know, it's definitely Star Wars-esque. It's John Williams-esque, but it's absolutely epic. Uh, what did you think of it? Did you like the score? I, I don't remember any of it. I couldn't hum two bars of this if you paid me a million dollars. Like, like, can you hum it right now? Yes. I've already forgotten it. It is so forgettable. Uh, I disagree. Let, let me play a little clip from it. I, I think it's fantastic.
honestly, I was when I was getting that clip, I listened to an entire seven minute clip. I mean, I just put it on the background to do other stuff. It's a it's a delightful score that I will endorse and I will say stands the test of time. Yeah, I don't think it's memorable at all. And while I'm complaining about the cheesy effects with the sword battles, all of the quote unquote effects in this movie are really painfully terrible no they're not not all of them yes they are name one that's okay name one that's fine i thought the spider i thought i like the spider scene are you kidding yes, me yes it's stop that motion photography so bad it's stop motion that looks terrible i i disagree i mean you're talking about does it look realistic no, it doesn't look realistic. It's terrifying. I think it's incredibly scary. I think it looks cool. It's special effects that don't look realistic. I think that scene was great. I think there's other scenes that are laughably horrible. I think there's other effects that are kind of cool. I think the sets are really neat. Um, what? What sets? What are you talking I'll about? I'll tell you one set that was great. The quicksand scene. It's weird. I watched that quicksand scene. I did have a memory from my childhood that I was terrified of that scene. I mean, it is what it is. And, you know, a guy or two dies in it. But I thought it was a cool scene. I mean, there are no sets in this movie other than, I guess, the inside of the Black Fortress. Like, most of this movie is outdoors on this planet, Krull, right? This is an alien world. Except it's Earth. It looks exactly like Earth. There is nothing alien or otherworldly about it at all. There's grasslands. There's mountains. There's rivers. At one point, you see, like, the Black Fortress is in snow and then in a desert. But, like, everything that exists on this planet is something that exists on our planet. Absolutely. And it's just like, okay, where's the cool alien elements you'd set this on an alien planet named Kroll. show me something cool and alieny they don't and even when they have this shapeshifter guy who can turn into any animal you would think oh he's gonna turn into some like pretty cool alien creatures no he turns into a puppy and a goose and a tiger, like all creatures that we have here on Earth. Those effects, by the way, when he shapeshifts, also terrible. I mean, they're they're early CGI. They look bad. You're right. Those are very bad. Did you recognize that guy, by the way, who plays Ergo the Magnificent, the shapeshifter? I did recognize him, but I, I don't know from where. What do I know him from? He's a teacher in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I can't take 10% from one or something. Like, that's the guy, right? Yes, 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 yes. I recognized him immediately. I'm like, is that the guy from Willy Wonka? And it is. And he is also just like terrible, quote unquote, comic relief. I mean, we were just talking about this in the prequels about Jar Jar's comic relief. I mean, I'll take Jar Jar over this guy any day of the week. There was one line that this guy had that I thought was actually funny, and I, and I chuckled. I didn't, like, laugh, but I did chuckle. Because did you have trouble hearing parts of this film? Because I did, and I wound up having to turn on the subtitles. My trouble with it was that I could hear it. Uh, like, I could hear all of the dialogue, which was a problem for me. Uh, because it was all terrible. One line of dialogue was good. I did like when that uh, Ergo the Magnificent, and I only got to notice it because of reading the subtitles. There's this little boy that tags along with them, uh, and he goes to Ergo, he goes, I'm Fitch. And the reply is, that's not impressive, but it's adequate. 
That that's a funny line. Like the way he said it. I, I mean, the actor's funny. You know, Al. I'm trying to find a couple nice things I like about this film. What's there to like about this film? I'm going to tell you another thing I liked about this film. Colwyn, he has to retrieve the glaive. That's probably the most famous thing from this film. It looks like a, a golden starfish that has these retractable blades at the end of each uh, of the five uh, legs. Arms, legs, whatever. And I don't know. It, the thing is... I like this weapon. I think this weapon is pretty awesome. But how do you use it? So you basically use it like a boomerang plus the force. So basically you throw it and it's like a spinning blade and can cut through anything, kill your enemies. And and a part that's never really explained, this guy Colwyn has sort of telekinetic powers over it as well. And he can control it with his mind. It's not explained at all. Right, right. At the end of the movie, he throws it, and then he's, like, holding his hand up, and I'm like, wait, is he trying to use the force because they never mentioned the force at all in this movie what the hell he's exactly using the force so while it's a really cool looking weapon in my opinion when when the blades are not open you hold this thing by one of the starfish arms and then the blade goes open and i always feel like you're just gonna kill yourself well also it boomerangs and it's got five blades that spin it's like one of those like table saw things absolutely if you could throw that you don't want that coming back to you that's the last thing you would want i could see it kind of coming back to you more as like a, a molnir kind of like the hammer it like stops spinning when it gets close to you if they had explained it like this is an epic weapon that finds its uh, owner and its owner will never be hurt by it like all they needed to do was say something like that but they didn't and he has to go and climb this huge mountain and there's rocks falling and it's a beautiful backdrop. They filmed, obviously, real mountains. It, it looks very nice. It's got, a again, I'm going to say, a fantastic James Horner score as he goes up. But the thing is, all he does is climb up the mountain and then go into a cave and reach into a hole and get it up. There's no kind of test that he has to do. There's no reason that any random schmo couldn't have picked this thing up. It should have been like there's a flame and once the chosen one puts his hand by it, the flame goes away. Anything. But it it made no sense why he's able to retrieve this. No one told him exactly where it was. Yanir just basically said climb up and like You know, it wasn't even one of these kind of forced things like, you will know where it is, your heart will lead you there, something random. But he just climbs like Everest and basically knows which cave to go into and which hole to stick his hand into. But I do like the glaive. I think it's fantastic. He pulls it out kind of all muddy and it's a cool reveal, in my opinion, as it kind of shows its golden awesomeness and the blade. But... There's no chosen one payoff for him to have earned this fantastic weapon. There's no payoff with any of it. You're right. It is pointless and stupid how he just happens to find it. But the fact that he gets it and then doesn't use it for 90% of the movie. And then when he does use it, it makes no sense 
how he uses it. Also, the word glaive just is stupid. I can only imagine Billy Crystal in The Princess Bride saying the glaive. Like, that's the only thing I could imagine whenever anyone said glaive. I was thinking of the exact same thing, but Professor Frank. Uh, I just kept okay, saying sure. glaive. And basically, we were both thinking of Jerry Lewis, you know? Right, 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 right. It's the lamest thing ever. Maybe it's tied with every other thing in this movie that's also super lame. Um, How about the Cyclops, which is, one, also, like I said, not original. Cyclops are a thing that you've seen a million times. Also, this Cyclops looks terrible. It looks like he's wearing a bandana with an eyeball drawn on. It's really, really bad. And then his whole character arc is that the Cyclops, they know how they're going to die. It is a curse. And then later in the movie, during a big climactic battle, all of the warriors go off and they're going to the Black Fortress. But the Cyclops has to stay behind because he knows he has to die. He understands it's his time. And you don't see him die, which is weird because they make it a point that this is where he's supposed to die. And then... After all the other guys go into the Black Fortress and they can't get in, then the Cyclops appears and lets him into the Black Fortress. Why didn't he just go with them then? He was going to end up there. That's where he's supposed to die. So why does he have to stay behind? None of it makes any damn sense. I actually think that the Cyclops makeup, I'm sorry, I think it actually looks kind of cool. I I, I like it. I think it's a practical effect. Obviously, it's supposed to be kind of the Chewbacca. This guy is enormous. He's like seven feet tall. He actually has a fantastic backstory. I was actually very intrigued when Yanir said they traded their eye for the vision to see the future, and they made this deal with the Beast. And the Beast uh, tricked them, though, and they can see the future, but the only thing they could see is their own death. I think that's kind of intriguing. That's a terrifying thing if you know the exact moment of your death. I think there's a ton you could do with that, but they do nothing with it. And, you know, he has this whole thing where I have to die, it's fate, there's nothing I could do about it. He seems kind of bored while he's on the quest because he's like, because I'm destined to be here, because I'm going to die on this quest. I was really waiting for some kind of like, you know, I'm supposed to die here and the guys will be like, no, we can save you. And he's like, this is my destiny. I I want to sacrifice myself. Like, you're right. It's all off screen where he dies and you're not even sure if he dies. Maybe like it's set up for the sequel or something. But I I was intrigued by this guy. I kind of thought the, the character was, was okay. And I thought he had kind of an interesting plot point that they did nothing with and it angered me okay i can't believe you thought any of that was like interesting or intriguing or anything the whole backstory is just endless exposition that is told to us by the old man character who gives a shit about this like random species and their backstory there's so much pointless exposition in the movie like when they're getting married to like unite these two kingdoms the dialogue is so painful where it's like well we are at war with the beast yes that is why we must marry so that we can unite our kingdoms yes and then we can join our armies together like okay we get it shut up like it doesn't need to be like a 45 minute explanation of why these people are getting married i I agree and i actually dislike the fact that they're completely in love uh i thought it would be a little more interesting in like a rip off the princess leia thing 
they have to slowly eventually love each other. But I guess it's not that kind of film because you don't really see the princess interacting with the prince very much. At all. They fall in love at first sight. It's an arranged marriage and then they meet each other and they're like, oh, we love each other. And not just like they believe they're in love. We, the audience, are supposed to believe that they're in love. And it is central to the quote unquote plot because the way that they defeat the beast is not with the glaive. The glaive hurts the beast, but how they ultimately defeat him is with the power of their love question mark no it's his uh secret fire powers that he has that he's able to basically like spider-man uh shoot fire from his wrists that was never explained earlier no 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 no. she has the power in the beginning in the wedding scene she has the fire in her hand and then she's supposed to like give the fire to him but then it's interrupted and so they don't do it and then at the end of the movie they have to finish their wedding ceremony and then she can give him the firepower and then he can blast the fire through the beast although if she had the firepower all along why is she just a damsel in distress waiting in this black fortress why doesn't she just say oh right i have firepower i can shoot fire out of my hand and then blow a hole through the beast herself because if she did that then that would end the movie but it doesn't make any fucking sense on any level. I actually remember when she did bring up the fire from the wedding, I was like, oh, that's actually a little bit clever because I did forget about it. It wasn't like one of these obvious, like they zoom in on it. So you have to remember it later. I'm like, oh, okay, the fire, what are they going to do with it? Oh, he has like the ability to like telekinetically shoot the fire. That has never been explained. And that was the part that that annoyed me there. But even before that, th- there's a scene and I'm going to actually compliment something else it's a minor special effect thing that i thought it was kind of cool what what you did in 83 so there's these horses that they need to get and they call them fire mares which is i think that's kind of a cool name for these fantastical horses they run so fast they like go on fire and there's like a slight little flame from their feet and it's very minor it's obviously like a you know a minor special effect today but i thought for 1983 i was like okay that's that's actually kind of clever it's it's showing fire and they're flying but these horses fly across the entire land and then land on the bottom of the Black Fortress and then these guys have to climb it and like three of them die on the way up. Like, why do these flying horses not fly to the top of the tower? It was so weird. Well, they're scared of heights. Ah, They flew across like everything. So while watching this movie, I'm thinking... Okay, this alien planet looks just like Earth, and these alien creatures look just like Earth animals. And then they mentioned these fire mares, and I'm like, okay, here we go. This is going to be cool. No, they're horses. They look just like regular horses, except they put, like, the shitty fire effects on the green screen when they're flying. Like, come on. They could have at least painted them on the side or something, put something do on there. Something. Yeah, they could have. You have a $30 million budget. You do nothing. Nothing. Well, they did the fire at the feet. That cost $30 million? Come on. I mean, the worst part was that was that front projection. That looked so laughably bad. And, you know, sometimes you go, eh, it's 1983. Yeah, but, like, Return of the Jedi was number three in the theaters that week. And, yes, that's Lucasfilm. And that's, you know, they're pumping all that money. But they're pumping $30 million into this. It's not like you're comparing, you know, The Last Starfighter, which had a couple million dollar budget. This film, they should have put the 
the money here. I just don't understand where that money went. Like, I think you must have failed to find something in your research that the guy who they gave all the money to was actually running a Ponzi scheme or he was like a swindler or something. And he just spent all of this money on like a mansion in the Cayman Islands and then like just didn't spend money on special effects. No, I think what they did is they kind of probably paid top dollar for mediocre stuff. They probably paid $10 million for the guy that did the special effects for Lost in Space. Like, And again, I think they hired the right guy for the stop motion photography stuff. I think that the spider was cool. There was other stop motion photography that I thought was very lame. I thought the miniatures of the fortress was very, very lame. Like it just kind of falls apart and it's obviously uh, like just uh, a three foot tall toy that's falling apart like you know the rancor is a toy but it's almost like cool when you see these behind the scenes thing like wow look at all that detail in this like three foot tall rancor from return of the jedi but can we talk about something that was laughably lame laughably and that is the beast First of all, we don't really see the the beast at first, which could be okay. You kind of just see his eyeball, which that in and of itself, Sauron-esque, okay, I'm fine with yeah. that. You have this kidnapped princess, and he wants to marry her, and it's not quite clear why. Yeah, it's not clear at all. The voiceover in the beginning says that the beast has conquered hundreds of planets and just goes from world to world, conquering worlds. Why is this planet Kroll, like, so hard for him to conquer? Why does he need to marry this woman? Does he marry a woman on every planet? I don't know. Like, it seems like he's emotionally invested in marrying Lissa for some reason, but we have no idea what that reason is. Right. And there's scenes throughout our, you know, epic adventure with uh, Colwyn and his uh, fellowship. And then it keeps cutting back to these scenes of the princess. And she's talking to the beast. And he's trying to convince her to marry him. It's just very, very odd. You don't know what his motivation is. And they never tell it to you. I looked into this. And not in the last 30 years have we found that there's any deleted scenes in this film. So I was thinking thinking that there was going to be some deleted scene that, or, or in the screenplay originally, he explains that he needs a, a mate to blah, blah, blah. So we don't understand the concept of him. But then the epic climactic battle, you finally see the beast and it's almost like it was a joke. I mean, this was not bad 80s. Like, this looked like something out of one of those 1950s, like sci-fi, like the creature from the swamp. Like, it, it was really odd how bad this was. When I, yes, I, I know you laugh at it, but I was a little bit impressed by some of the, at least the artwork and the sets and the stop motion photography like that was done. What the hell were they doing with this beast? I didn't understand it at all. You're right. It's laughable. It's not intimidating. It's not scary. And you could have like a low budget monster that kind of looks a little gross. Honestly, even the slayers, like when they kill the slayers and then there's like stuff that comes out of them, it looks like shit. I mean, literally and figuratively, but like at least it's like maybe a little 
a little scary. Like, the beast is just nothing. The spider is at least a spider, Al, right? Like, it's at least a spider. This thing looks like Admiral Akbar, like, in, like, a lamer version of him, but, like, blue, sort of. But he's supposed to be evil. Like, it's as if you bought, like, the the Spirit of Halloween quality version of an Admiral Akbar costume in blue. That's what this beast looks like. It's so lame. I feel like I didn't even know that he was blue. I just felt like it was like a dark shadow that looked like shit. They could have kept it just as an eyeball. I would have been fine with that. I would have been like, all right, cool. You, you can't do much more than that. I, I get it. And then finally, uh, Colwyn, he rescues Lissa, And then here's the ultimate battle. At first, he throws uh, the glaive at the beast, and the beast, like, shoots a laser beam at it, and the glaive stops for a second and swings around for a few moments before it kills the beast. Then he comes back alive, and then they kill him with their fire love. Uh, It's so underwhelming. I mean, forget the special effects. Even if they were lame, it's just so boring. Yeah, and then the movie ends with the voiceover that the movie started with, which is that this prince and princess or this king and this queen, they rule their planet and their son will rule the galaxy. Oh, what's going to happen with that? That's the sequel. We're going to get to meet their kid and see how their kid rules the galaxy. But like, one, I don't care. Two, I feel like ruling the galaxy is not usually, like, a good thing. I mean, obviously, we just watched the Star Wars prequels, and the emperor who rules the galaxy is the bad guy. But, like, they just barely met in this movie. They are now married. Okay, neat. I don't give a shit about their romance. I couldn't care less about a kid that they may or may not have and what he does in the galaxy. Like, it's not just, like sequel fodder it's like yeah but who cares it's like the worst post-credit scene from a marvel movie ever so that's how the movie ends it's set up for a sequel that never came to be there's not as far as i know even some like dark horse comic sequel you know randomly made in the 90s or kickstarter funding to try to crowdfund the original screenwriters they're gonna write a sequel no nothing ever happened There was an Atari 2600 video game. But James, I want to know your opinion. Do you think that Kroll stands a test of time? Let's say you fell into a coma in 1990 and you woke up 30 years later, it's the 2020s, and you vaguely remember the 80s, but you can't quite remember all about the 80s, and you watch this film, almost every scene you'd go, Oh, oh, I do remember this film because it's vaguely familiar to so many other films in the 80s. Even Lord of the Rings, that obviously wasn't a uh, wasn't a movie back then. There were those uh, cartoons in the 70s. But this film, uh, it's got a couple of things that uh, are going wrong for it. Uh, one, it was made in 1983. Had this film been made in even 2003 or 1993 even... Just alone, like, you probably could have made something a a lot better quality. That You wouldn't be distracted by some of these bad special effects. The things that do stand up, the score, I think it's really good. I I do. If you want something kind of in the background, you can listen to it. I'm telling you, put on Kroll, the soundtrack. It's a nice little soundtrack by James Horner. Um, The acting itself... 
I think is very good. I think uh, this Ken Marshall guy, I mean, he looks just like a Luke Skywalker. The guy has a movie star quality about him. I think he's a good actor. I think everyone else in it is fine. I don't know who plays Yanir, the Obi-Wan Kenobi character, but I'll bet you he's an established character. I think everyone was fine. I think the stop-motion photography team was very good at at the spider scene. I think some of the um, set designs, some of them were very good. Some of the costumes were fine. Everyone on this uh, movie seems to have tried really hard and put their really best effort. Good acting, good music. Uh, You know, the the special effects are as lame as most non-Star Wars things. The problem is this story sucks. The screenplay is terrible. And I think with this same crew, same budget, maybe a better special effects team, but I think with a better story, you really could have had something. But it just falls apart, and it's just like, it's such an 80s film. It really is totally 80s, and I don't mean that in a good way. It's just a film that fails in so many ways, despite a lot of chances to succeed. So for me, no, it does not stand the test of time. The movie, the soundtrack, yes, the movie does not stand the test of time. I have not been this curious since Pearl Harbor, Al. What do you think of this film? Does 1983's Crawl stand the test of time? James, the word masterpiece is thrown around a lot these days. (laughs) But what defines a masterpiece? And I'll tell you. I'll tell you what defines a masterpiece. A movie with a completely original story, (laughs) something totally fresh that you've never seen before, ever. You've never seen anything like it. (laughs) I'm talking about two romantic leads with white hot chemistry. I mean, I was worried for my TV. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, they're going to burn the TV with this white hot chemistry. Did you know that the princess, her voice was dubbed over? It wasn't even her. Yes, I think you can tell that if you're paying attention. Uh, amazing production design where you just have this alien planet that looks so, so unlike anything you've ever seen if you've ever, like, you know, gone outside. Um, uh, you know, acting that is just stellar, amazing work, except for these, this, uh, Liam Neeson and Robbie Coltrane guys. I don't know who the fuck they are. They're never going to amount to anything, but everyone else in this movie, whoo! We top notch. Another thing that makes a masterpiece is pacing a movie that never, not for a second, makes you bored or think, Jesus Christ, am I still watching these guys climb that fucking mountain still? Um, how much longer is this movie? No, seriously, it's that much longer. Fuck me. Effects that not only have they aged really well, but were amazing compared to other movies at the time. Wow! Just unbelievable. That sounds like a great film, Al. Uh, was was that this film? No. This was the fucking opposite of everything I just said. This movie is garbage. It looks like garbage. It sounds like garbage. Everything about it is garbage. Stop motion, by the way, to me, always looks like stop motion. 
even really, really good stop motion just doesn't work in a live action movie. If you did a whole movie in stop motion, fine. And they have like uh, um, the Nightmare Before Christmas and the whole thing is stop motion. Fine. Okay. I don't care. But like when you have live actors playing off stop motion, it just doesn't work. The stop motion spider looks like a stop motion spider. And quite frankly, I have seen real spiders that looked way scarier than this fucking thing. So no, I do not think this movie stands the test of time. No, I do not understand why you made me watch this fucking movie. It sucks. It's really, really shitty. I can understand that maybe some people have some nostalgia for it because they watched it when they were a kid and they were like, ooh, that's cool. A thing with five knives on it that you can throw and comes back to you and doesn't hurt you. All right, maybe if you're six, you think that's really cool. But I thought this whole movie was fucking dog shit. Well, this is why I had you watch this film, Al. I love when you watch these films. (laughs) You are banned from picking movies for the next, I'm going to say, 600 episodes. I think that should be a fair penance. Well, we are doing nothing but Star Trek episodes starting episode, what will that be, 920 or so? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll we'll end the podcast at nine nineteen. Um, yeah. I mean, just fuck you for making me watch this movie, James. <laughs> fuck you. I love you, but fuck you. <laughs> this was not a fun watching experience. However, I will encourage our listeners to tune in next week for a movie that I'm guessing has to be much, much better than this dog shit. We're going to be talking about the movie The Paper, starring Michael Keaton. We're going to be joined by two very special guests, Matt Kroll and Shahir Dowd from the only podcast about movies. They joined us on our Sorcerer episode. They are coming back to the show really looking forward to talk with those guys i really enjoy their show i'm sure that's going to be a really fun conversation until then of course we want to hear from you we are at test of time pod on facebook twitter and instagram let us know your thoughts about kroll and how terrible it is and how much you hate it and how much you hate james for making me watch this movie we'll see you next week for crawl 2 crawl the number two or crawl t-o-o crawl 2 crawl harder I can't imagine how it could be any worse, to be honest. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone.